0: is offered through Jim Saulnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor.
1: This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful Northern Colorado. Join us as Certified Financial Planner Jim Saulnier, as well as Colorado State University Finance Instructor and Certified Financial Planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401Ks, annuities, Social Security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show whether you are listening live in colorado or streaming from their website or itunes podcast jim and chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement just visit their website at jimhelps.com that's jim h-e-l-p-s dot and click the meet the team button on the homepage. now here's jim and chris with today's show
2: Right, welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. The, uh, you wouldn't know this, we're recording this on an odd day, but it's going to release on the same day. feels a little odd to Jim and I because we're recording this a little bit earlier than normal because he's out at the, uh, the uh, annual Charles Schwab conference for advisors attached to Charles Schwab. We custody our assets that we manage at Charles Schwab. So he's uh, visiting with uh, all the Schwabians out there, and uh, he's got Jacob out there too. So one of the minions here from the office is is out there. I haven't heard how Jacob's liking it, but uh, uh, they're out gathering all sorts of information, learning all kinds of cool stuff to help our practice and help those that we uh, serve, if you will. He's joining us from his, I believe, his hotel room. Um, just like we recorded the EDU show for this week as well. So the acoustics in the hotel room were pretty good. We'll have to see how his cough is shaping up. I suspect it's a little bit better today than it was yesterday when we recorded last, but, uh, he assures me he's got a nice set of questions. Um, we've got a social security question I know, and an, and an Irma question. We seem to be getting lots of Irma questions in, um, And it's not even really Irma season in my mind. Irma season would be after people start receiving their Medicare premium assessments for the upcoming year, which I don't think has come out yet. I haven't heard anybody receiving their official announcement yet. Um, That's usually where people get slapped across the face with their first Irma announcement or their first Irma assessment on on their Medicare uh, uh, statement, if you will, that comes out towards the end of each year.
3: Didn't they uh, announce that Medicare premiums are going up about 6%? Yeah,
2: they're up about um, eight or nine bucks. I think it's about 174 now. It's like $9 or so. Um, so it's up about, I think about 6% sounds about right. Yeah, And they made thought. the announcement a little earlier than normal. They haven't sent everybody's individualized estimate. So they've announced it broadly. So if you... If you are going to and if you know what your Irma bracket is or you know what that you're not in Irma, then uh, you know what your premiums are at this point in time because they've officially announced it. They announced it back on October 12th. so they they were a couple two three weeks earlier than normal. Um, I'm not sure that what if that indicates they're really getting their their stuff together. but yeah, it was an increase of nine dollars and eighty cents from 164.90 I used to always call it $165 for 2023 it's going up to 174.70 for the base part B premium that's if you don't pay an IRMA premium surcharge it'll essentially be 175 bucks a month for your part B uh so yeah that that, that is known but everyone'll get their official letter notifying them of this and also in that letter will be, oh, by the way, you are paying the base amount or you're being blessed with IRMA, income-related monthly adjustment amount or an increased um, Part B premium uh, on top of, you know, above and beyond the one seventy four is the base amount. So watch for your letter in the mail.
3: Is that my cue? You didn't give me a very good handoff there.
2: Well, I didn't realize you left.
3: I didn't leave. I just muted. <laughs> There's no place to leave. I'm in a hotel room. I can't <laughs> walk to my microwave like I usually do. Well, I didn't realize you talking. weren't
2: there until I looked up and your microphone was muted. So <laughs> I was suspecting you were getting ready to jump right back
3: in. But uh, No, yeah. I'm sitting in a hotel room in, so, in Philly.
2: Any uh, exciting news from the conference from today that you want to share with us?
3: No, I mean, mo- most of the courses – I'm going to the classes and the booths that I'm stopping at are all business related, okay. uh, how to run a business. I think I'm born the hell out of Jacob, but I let him go to whatever classes he wants. Uh, he was at one, uh, earlier today. I don't know which one he went to. We both went to a sequence of return risk presentation that I had already seen Michael Kitsis do in the past, but he did kind of a repeat of it. And I thought Jacob would, would find it interesting. And he did. Does Michael's uh,
2: Michael, suit fit any better this year? Than he normally.
3: Uh, yeah, I think Michael is slimming down, so uh, kudos to Michael, and uh, still wearing a blue suit. <coughs> oh, I, but, I never uh, felt his... that his
2: suit was too small. I always felt that his suit was a little oversized. It just seemed to kind of be baggy on him.
3: Um, True, but and... I think because he's losing weight, he actually had it tailored, or he oh, bought a new one.
2: Maybe nice. We'll see. I'm missing out on all the fun. Get to see what Michael Kitsis is wearing.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's pretty much he always wears a blue suit <laughs> yeah. and. Uh his, his colleague and associate, I, whatever you want to call him, Jeff Levine, uh, a friend of mine, I wouldn't say close friend, but we are very cordial with each other when we see each other, uh, always has his uh, vest on. So uh, I think that's the kind of, what do you call it, a, a shtick, uh, if yeah. you will.
1: Uh, yeah, but I will
3: say when I was at the Rock Retirement Club uh, meeting in, um, don't tell me, it was somewhere, Dallas, kind of pulled that out of nowhere. Uh Dallas two weeks ago. I did uh, get some nice remarks about the shirts I wear. So maybe that'll be my shtick. Wear nice shirts.
2: What kind of shirts did you wear?
3: The the Robert Graham shirts that I like that are um. a little bit on the pronounced side, that uh very colorful. I have cheerful shirts. I know you wear yeah. your boring polar. Mine are boring, yeah.
2: Yep. That's my shtick. Boring. D- your shtick
3: is boring, yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, anyways, let's let's give up our shtick and get into uh, the email questions, so I can get back to the Schwab conference. Okay. Okay. It. Uh, where am I? The emails. There we are. Nope, that's not it. There we are. Okay. So we'll do a social security question first, then an IRMA question, then an annuity question, then the new question of the week, and any other question that we want to get to. And we have uh, two updates from the Ed Slot group from last week's show that I will bring everyone uh, in on. Hmm. And maybe if I really want to get on a tirade, because you did ask anything new. Okay, see, too bad you asked that, because now it just squirrel. Um, there was something new that I wanted so desperately to chat about. Um, oh, God, should I do it or not?
2: Is it an EDU topic? We can do it next show.
3: No, but it relates. I'm going to chat about this a little bit, and then we'll get into the questions, folks, because it, it did uh, relate to the EDU series that Chris and I recently did uh, on the actuary who did a study mm. on mm-hmm. uh, uncapped He used 1%, 1% AUM advisory fee, and how that is robbing, in his opinion, millions from uh, retirees. And I encourage the listeners to take that to heart, not necessarily the example he gave, but what his example shows that the fee, and you mentioned this, Chris, uh, is compounding and it seems insidious, uh, it seems insignificant, but deep down, it's silently taking a lot of money. You may disagree with how the actuary uh, framed it. As Chris pointed out, he made it a 40-year projection to make the numbers bigger, but his findings can't be disputed. So keeping that in mind, I sat in, Chris, on the CFP's ethics training. Because we have to do two hours of ethics training, as you know.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And they were being offered. And it was one of the questions that just made me shake my head. And I'm going to share it because it kind of ties into what Chris and I were saying. And I'm going to piss a lot of people off in the industry. But that's <laughs> nothing new. So you and I, Chris, honestly, folks, if you listen to us, we... We are agnostic in the sense I don't necessarily feel a registered rep of a broker dealer who earns money on a commission is any better or any worse than my business model, which is an investment. Well, I own a registered investment advisory firm, but I'm also an investment advisor representative of that uh, registered investment advisory firm. Chris is an investment advisor representative of the registered investment advisory firm. So you have the registered rep who generally earns a commission working for a broker-dealer. And then you have the quote-unquote fiduciary advisor who is held to a different standard. True. But we've said many, many times you can't legislate morality. But they generally earn a fee. Now, you know, Chris... Because you're in the industry and we chat a lot about this. The CFP board doesn't let Chris and I call ourselves fee-only planners. Not that we care about that. But they're adamant that if you receive, they don't call them commissions. They call them sales-related compensation. Mm -hmm. If you receive sales-related compensation, you can't be quote-unquote fee-only. Well, because I personally maintain an insurance license, and even though nine times out of ten when when offering annuities, we use fee-based or quote-unquote commission-free annuities that don't pay me one red cent, but we do occasionally earn a commission on an annuity. Which we will explain to a client if we feel that annuity is better or the only option, which is often the case, especially on MIGAs, where we have very limited fee based and a wide variety of commission based. Why am I going down this road? There was a question, Chris, on the ethics exam, not exam, but we had to answer questions to prove we were paying attention in the audience mm-hmm. uh, and answer them on our smartphones. And the question really made me shake my head because the CFP board still doesn't feel that, how can I put this? An advisor who earns an AUM fee is considered more pure. Remember, I used the analogy, a squirrel. And an advisor who receives a commission on investments is less pure or erect. And I've always said they're both rodents. So the question came up, Chris, where they laid the groundwork that there was a registered rep So he, a registered rep of a broker-dealer, which Chris and I are not registered reps, and we have nothing against, though, that business model. Is that correct, Chris? You don't have anything against the registered rep model, I hope?
2: No, there's nothing inherently wrong with it, as long as they're not holding themselves out to be something they are not.
3: Correct. I agree. They're not a fiduciary. Legally speaking, they are not a fiduciary. Now, many of them also hold a fiduciary license, through an affiliation with a registered investment advisor, but now we're going down a whole other rabbit hole that I want to avoid. But they laid the framework this way, Chris. They said there's a registered rep and he has a client and the client, I forget how many dollars the client was going to invest. That's immaterial. But the registered rep had two choices. And they laid the framework that this particular client was looking for a long term hold, was not looking for active management, not that they were looking for passive, but we're not looking, I guess you could say, for timing the market or anything. They wanted a, a, I think they said moderate allocation, long term hold, buy and hold. So that was the framework they were saying this, this to the registered rep in this example. So the registered rep only makes money if the client purchases a mutual fund from them. That's how registered reps are. And I'm not lambasting that business model. And I don't want anyone who is in the industry thinking I am if that's your business model. But it's the, this is the question, Chris. The registered rep had two choices. Put them in a front-loaded mutual fund, otherwise known as an A-share, folks, that would charge 4% up front one time. Or put them in a C-share mutual fund, which is what they call a level load sometimes, folks, which would charge the client, you ready for this, Chris? 1% a year forever. And they wanted to know which... To live up to a fiduciary duty, which mutual fund should he have chosen? Now, I'll give you the answer, folks. The answer was the A share, the upfront 4%. -hmm. And the person teaching the class went on to explain that the commission, because this is an evil commission on an A or C share. This is the rat, not the squirrel. The C-share, he actually is up on stage talking to a room full of RIAs, Chris. (laughs) A room full of people who charge AUM fees. Maybe he was doing this on purpose. (laughs) People whose firms dwarf the size of mine. We're talking people with hundreds of millions, if not billions of assets in this room, folks. And here's little old me with 120, 110, whatever we have, million of assets. Little old me. And he's up there saying, In this particular question, the registered rep would have been wrong if he put him in the C-share because the client was a buy and hold and had a long-term outlook and 4%, even though it was up front, is cheaper. Could you believe that answer, Chris, to that room?
2: Maybe he was a mole and he was trying to infiltrate and point out to all those 1% AUM guys that they're fee model may not be in the best interest of the client Where are I
3: going with this folks a registered rep earns a commission and we, you are told as the public that is evil i am not a registered rep i'm not a broker this i'm defending them If you were to assume both the registered rep and an investment advisor representative of an RIA have the same level of competency, let's assume that. The CFP board was saying in that question, it would have been wrong for the registered rep to have put them in the C-share mutual fund, which would have levied 1% a year because the client made it clear they were looking for a long-term hold, but nothing active. And this mutual fund had everything rolled into one. And you can get funds like that. So which fund should he or she have chosen? Oh, no, no, no. You got to choose the 4%, even though it was higher up front. But an investment advisor representative of an RIA firm, they generally charge 1%. Some charge more, some charge less. Forever. Yet, they're the squirrel. They are innocent and pure. And I'm one of them. I am an RIA and an IAR. And it just frustrates me when they, they being anything from the financial press to the regulators to RIAs to you, the public yourself, don't see that a fee is a commission by another name. They're both rodents. So, where am I going with this? And besides everything tying into the EDU we just did, during this course, Chris, they went to great lengths to explain to us that the um, CFP board does not discriminate against commissions. And in fact, in their ethics, they word it sales related compensation. And they feel the AUM model is not sales-related compensation. I nearly flipped my seat, Chris. How can you tell me? It's not sales-related. If the RIA does not convince you to move your assets to them and let you manage them, they don't get paid either. Whether the broker convinces you to buy this mutual fund for a A share fee or a C share fee depending on what's appropriate that's considered a sale because if they don't sell the mutual fund they don't get paid but an RIA is not considered sales-based compensation but if you don't move your money Chris does that RIA get paid uh that would be no it's sales but they don't see it either by design or stubborn ignorance. I don't know. I so wanted to engage this conversation, but I would have been outnumbered about 700 to two. I had Jacob with me. I figured he would have stuck up for me. Maybe not. (laughs) So I didn't. But it really did bug the hell out of me because I believe so passionately that the uncapped AUM fee is not a squirrel. It's a rodent, just like a rat is a rodent. Neither the squirrel or the rat, the commission or the fee, is any pure. They are still dollars coming from you. And yes, a registered rep of a broker-dealer will not be paid unless you invest with something they have. But an RIA will not be paid unless you invest with something they have which is allegedly their prowess on managing money and the portfolio they're going to design for you. But to say it's not sales-based compensation, that's just asinine or outright ignorance because they are selling something. They're selling themselves. Just like the registered rep was selling themselves. I was a registered rep. I earned sales-based compensation at Waddell and Reed. You know that, Chris, when I first started 24 years ago. But people didn't hire me because of the fund I could put them in. They hired me because of the advice I was giving them. And that's how at least I wanted it to be perceived. And and I felt, honestly, that's why people were working with me. And that's one of the reasons I went over to the RIA side. I didn't want to have to convince people to buy an investment. I wanted them to believe in me. But I also didn't want to be compensated only if I collected money. And I've always allowed my firm to operate by people just paying me for advice. And you know that, Chris, that's a tenant of that firm and many firms, not just mine. But there are many RIAs folks who will only give you financial planning advice if you move the money to them. Yet the CFP board says that's not sales-based and that's bull Excuse my French. They're selling themselves at that point. So yeah, you asked me if anything got my goat or under my skin or, or got me going, that did. Aren't you sorry I, you asked?
2: Well, I, I'm fascinated by the question.
3: Oh, so was but I. I wasn't expecting it, quite I, I took an, a screenshot an animated of it. I response. actually took a screenshot of it, not a screenshot, a picture of it. So it, it, the answer, I didn't get the question. I wish I got the question part. Too. You
2: should email it to somebody and say, okay, so does this mean at CFP and say, does this mean we should all become registered reps so that we could um, do these 4% up front because the 1% every year is bad?
3: Well, they now granted, and some clients need ongoing hand holding and not no, looking it. for long term. But if you have, there's a lot of clients in. that
2: go to RAAs that are buy and hold style folks.
3: So that's what I mean. If you're yeah. a buy and hold investor and your RIA is only rebalancing you once a year, my argument would be based on that question, the. RIA is not living up to their fiduciary duty by pointing out to them, you know, you might be able to go to a registered rep and pay an upfront commission and be a lot cheaper for you. That's what they should do, but that's not what they're going to do. No, But they're the squirrel. And the registered rep is the rat. It's all marketing, folks. I'm trying to share this with you so you can see through the smoke screen and the gimmick. Why not just... Charge someone for your time and give them a retirement plan or a financial plan. Why do you have to manage assets? You should separate the two. Oftentimes our firm convolutes the two together. And you're only going to be able to get financial planning, quote unquote, advice if I manage your money. And don't tell me then that's not sales-based compensation. You're selling your investment management prowess in order to give financial planning. But if no money moves to you, you ain't being paid. So that's sales-based. That, that's the thing that irks me. When they went out of their way to point out, we have nothing against commissions. In fact, we just have an issue with sales-based compensation. The whole yeah. industry is sales. When you go to a doctor that's sales, the doctor's going to try to convince you he or she knows what ails you and they can cure you. The whole economy is sales-based. Everything is a sale. Anyways, don't get me going on that. Okay, let's okay. go to a social security question. Perfect. Now you're probably sorry that you shouted squirrel. I kind of whispered it. and then All right. Hopefully people found that baffling as well and scratching their heads. Really? That was a question on an ethics exam to RIAs who charge 1% fees. Okay. My ex passed away and he received only one year of benefits from social security. I am now remarried, but looking at getting divorced. I will be 61 this year. I have a state pension as well as my quarters in Social Security. I am unsure with the windfall elimination provision when I should file for Social Security for myself. Or do I have the ability to file on behalf of my deceased ex? And can I postpone filing until I'm 67? I'm just wondering what my best options are. I called Social Security, but they just sent me back to their website.
2: So this has a nuance to it. Obviously, we don't have any numbers to deal with. So I'm not going to be able to answer specifically, you know, what's the best claiming because we need to know the numbers. We need to know, know a lot more about their overall situation, what the Social Security's job needs to be, what it has to accomplish during your overall retirement. So I can't get into that, but I can clarify a few rules that might help you uh determine what's best for yourself if you, you know, help this this uh listener um and then uh, also those who might find themselves in the same situation. So I'm in, I'm going to assume that you were married to your ex for at least 10 years because that's the only time benefits on their record would be available to you is if you had been married for 10 years before divorcing. So that wasn't mentioned in here, but let's just assume that is the case. Assuming that's the case, um, uh, this person, if they were unmarried, would have the right to spousal benefits if their ex were still alive and survivor benefits if their ex passes away as if they were still married to that person. There's a couple nuances to the rules, but that's generally the case. If you're if you divorce and you remain unmarried, you then still retain spousal rights, if you will, to to to, uh, social security benefits. So, since the ex has passed away, we're talking specifically about survivor benefits. However, they mention they're remarried, so they're not unmarried. With survivor benefits, as long as you become you, you uh, become married after turning 60, you actually can still claim survivor benefits on your ex's record if even when you're married, as long as you get remarried after the age of 60. So there's an exception essentially to the unmarried rule when claiming benefits on your ex's record. And that's one of the exceptions. But here I'm assuming she's, this person says they'll be re- they are remarried now but looking divorce and will be 61 next year so i'm assuming the marriage wasn't so recent that they actually got married after turning 60 and are looking to get unmarried <laughs> so quickly so let's i'm i'm going to have to make one other assumption here that they they were married before the age of 60 and That would mean if they remained married, that they would have given up the right to those survivor benefits on their ex's record by being married prior to 60 and still being married. But here's the gotcha in this, the the helpful gotcha in this uh, situation. They're talking about becoming divorced again. Once you're divorced again, you fall back into the unmarried category and the benefits to that original ex are restored on that original X's record. So once you become divorced at any age, doesn't have to happen before 60, after 60, what have you? you once you enter the realm again of the unmarried, as long as you were married to that spouse that we're talking about here for at least 10 years before becoming divorced, you have the rights to survivor benefits on their record. Now, survivor benefits are available to you as long as young as age 60. Or as young as age 50 if you're disabled. So we'll leave that one out because it's they're going to be 60. So they could, in fact, claim the survivor benefit and then switch to their own um, as a strategy if it makes sense. I don't know what the numbers are. I don't know if that would work in their circumstances. The extra little twist in this one is they clearly have a non-covered pension because they mentioned being affected by WEP. And if you're affected by WEP, the Windfall Elimination Provision, you're also gonna be affected by GPO, which will reduce the amount of a survivor benefit that you otherwise might claim. I have no numbers with your example to know if your GPO offset is large enough to even allow you to collect a survivor benefit. But your fundamental right to that survivor benefit is going to be restored when you become divorced again and you become unmarried. So you'll have to look at the numbers. And I would would recommend, there's enough moving parts here. I would encourage this person to reach out to someone who really knows Social Security and can can help guide you in this decision-making, someone who will look at more than just the Social Security because making a standalone Social Security decision without looking at the rest of your financial uh, life is is inappropriate, in my opinion. You've got to know where the Social Security piece fits in with the rest of your life to to kind of pick the best approach. But someone's going to have to be really familiar with the rules of Social Security, how WEP works, how GPO works, be able to get benefit estimates for yourself and for the survivor benefit. Um, I don't know how long you've been married to this second person, but it's possible that you might have access to, you know, benefits from two separate ex-spouses, not that you could get them both, but one might be larger than the other, who knows? So it's, there's a lot of moving parts here, but I did want to clarify that if you do remarry before age 60, you can regain access to the benefits from that ex-spouse if you become divorced again. So it isn't a, it isn't a, a switch that flips and then gets stuck in that position. If you remarry before 60 and then you're, you're lost forever having a survivor benefit on your ex, if you divorce that second, third, or fourth spouse and you become unmarried again, you then have all the rights of a regular divorced spouse when it comes to spousal and survivor benefits. So Um, hopefully that helps a little bit, to to clarify a few of the rules here, but, uh, uh, you are right. It's, you're likely not to get very good help by just calling social security because what they're going to do only is answer specific questions that you have. They can answer questions as to rules. They can't look at your situation and give you guidance as to which the best thing for you to do. That's going to probably take a financial advisor that knows what they're doing, and uh, so I would I would encourage you to seek that person out to give you a very you know a personalized assessment of what your situation would involve.
3: All righty, I think you did a good job on that. You didn't go ranting and raving like I did earlier. Um, let's get to a Irma question. Okay. This one's a little confusing. I'm going to skip some sections of it that I don't. I think if I tried reading them, they would just confuse clients. But I'm going to uh, clients listeners. But I'm going to try to uh, get get the main gist of what this gentleman is asking. Um, Oh, oh, you should get this one. If you you grew up, you're just a few years younger than me. Um, So we grew up around the same time. Uh, Greetings from the state, which is the fictitional home of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Anybody who to me is Mm. older than 50 should be answering this question right now.
2: Well, I know it's a northern state with a Canadian influence, so it's got to be Wisconsin or Minnesota
3: in my mind. Oh, come on. Don't you remember where Rocky and Bullwink over? Do you know the name of the town?
2: I don't remember the name of the town, no, but I certainly Frostbite watched
3: Falls.
2: That doesn't help a ton. So <laughs> um,
3: It's fictional. Minnesota. They're from uh, Minnesota. Well, I was about to
2: say that. I was going to say between Minnesota and Wisconsin, I'm going to guess Minnesota, so yeah
3: rocky and bullwinkle that brings back some memories there okay I talk have a about squirrels. Uh, yeah. yeah say what
2: well we were talking about squirrels earlier so there's
3: a squirrel, squirrel. that's right rocky is a squirrel and bullwinkle's a dog oh, no he's not a dog how is he did you watch the show moose he's a moose he's a moose <laughs> he's not a dog well they dogs chase squirrels so it's just squirrel <laughs> dog whatever okay I have a question about how Irma works. Mm-hmm. I understand the Medicare premium is based on your modified adjusted gross income from your tax return two years earlier. Mm-hmm. In our case, our 2021 MAGI modified adjusted gross income, in our case, our 2021 MAGI was 192,000. My wife enrolled in Medicare for the first time this year. And let me make sure this came in 2023. Yes, May of 23, he said Mm -hmm. this. Okay. My wife enrolled in Medicare for the first time this year and is being charged the base amount, about $165 a month for Medicare. For 2023, the first IRMA bracket kicks in at $194,000. So we are paying the base premium, but just barely. Mm -hmm. They're just a couple thousand under, yep. Right, he's a little bit under the first Irma tier where he would be hit with a surcharge. Yep. They're at 192, the tier's at 194. So they're getting by, mm-hmm. as the saying would go, by the skin of their teeth. My question is if our income in 2023 does exceed 194, will this get caught when we file our 2023 taxes? And will the IRS expect us to pay the difference? It'll be about $65 a month more for her with our tax return further. if um, That's the part I want to skip, though. The the next part I don't think applies, so I'm going to skip it. I'm going to go to the end. You guys often talk about how to file for an IRMA adjustment if your income goes down. But what are the impacts if your income goes up? Do you get a one-year free pass? Or will the IRS catch this? What about in reverse? If we are charged Irma, but our income ends up below the threshold, will we get our money back? Thanks in advance for your responses. Interesting question. Yeah, what I'm happened? glad we got
2: this question because it'll allow me to clarify when it works one way and when it works a different way because there's two ways this can work. I'm going to describe the default way because that's the way it's going to affect most people. And with most people, uh, he's essentially describing the fact that it's true that for 2023 Medicare premiums, it's going to be based on your 2021 modified adjusted gross income from your tax return from the tax year 2021. And they're just under it. He asked if you earned more than that in 2023, are they going to come after you for it? And the answer is no. No, because your 2023 modified adjusted gross income is going to set your 2025 Medicare premiums. That's where they're going to catch it. So your 2023 income might very well generate an IRMA, but only in 2025, and only if you exceed the IRMA premium or the IRMA tiers that are set for 2025, which you won't know until the end of 2024, but it'll be based on your 2023 modified adjusted gross income. So they're not doing any of this real-time truing up or truing down. They don't look at your, they don't, it's not that they're estimating your IRMA based on your two years ago modified adjusted gross income. They are literally using your modified adjusted gross income from two years ago to set your premium for the year and that's end of story. That's how it works standard. The exception and we talked about this recently on one of our shows, is when someone files SSA-44, which is the appeal to use a more recent year for IRMA determinations rather than two years ago, that's literally what you're doing with your SSA-44 filing. You're saying, please don't use two years ago. Use a more recent this more recent data for this year that we have and you might say, well, why wouldn't everybody do that? You can't, unless you have one of the life-changing events that allows you to char uh, file SSA-44. If you do, and you, for instance, let's say their 2021 um, Ma- Maggie was much, much higher than what they stated. So they were gonna be affected by IRMA, but they retired since 2021. Maybe they retired in 2022. So they could, and their income now is much lower. They could have filed SSA 44 and said, please, for 2023, do not use our 2021 income. It was much higher because we were still working. We are now retired, which is one of the life-changing events. Reduction of income, not technically retired, but reduction of income. And please use our estimate for 2023, Modified Adjusted Gross Income instead. And the IRS, as long as your life-changing event really did happen, will do exactly that. They'll use your estimate for 2023. But here's where they will true it up. At the end of 2023, when they finally get your income information, once they finally get your modified adjusted gross income figures for 2023, if they were higher than you told them you expected them to be, and it causes you to be in a higher IRMA bracket, you're gonna get a letter from them that says, well, you asked us to use 2023 to determine your 2023 IRMA, and we ba- and we trusted your estimates. But it turns out your 2023 income was much higher. We're gonna honor your request to use 2023, modified adjust gross income, but we're gonna use what you really made, what your real earnings were, and not take what you told us, which was either a lie or just a bad estimate. That's when there's a true up or true, true down, technically. They're going to look at what you really did after, because you're, they're just following what you asked them to do. The SSA 44 says, please use my current income information, not from two years ago, and I, I'm, I deserve this mercy because I had a life-changing event. That's when there's a true up. So when people are thinking, wait a minute, Chris just described a couple of shows ago that someone did have a true up situation where they got a letter that their income was higher and they're going to be charged this back Irma that they you know, they, they are, they, they claim that they owe. That can happen after you've done an SSA 44. If that's not the case. If you're just regular you know dealing with things as you know as as normal we we would call it um, they're using two years prior, so there's no true up or true down. Your current Maggie is going to affect you in the future for future Irma determinations, but they're not going to make real time adjustments as I just described. so hopefully that kind of clears up how it all works and
3: and uh, uh,
2: you now understand when there's this true up situation and when there isn't
3: okay excellent thanks for the clarification Mm -hmm. i'm sure everybody appreciates it who geeks out on irma like you do okay let's get into two things from last week's show folks Mm -hmm. we had um some follow-ups that i wanted to get some clarification from from the ed slot minions if you will and we did so the first one let's go to the easier one first that was when uh, I started going off on a tangent, which longtime listeners know isn't difficult, or, or new listeners probably figured out by now. That's not hard for Jim to do. And I started giving an example. Uh, I forget how it came up or, or in what question that, that it came up. Oh, it was the, the basis inside an IRA and how we separate basis out of an IRA. We had that question of the gentleman wanted to do a QCD um, on – from a credit union member, and there's a question on there. Does this right. have
2: any basis? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: So anyways, we don't have to get into that question. I started giving an example, though, of one of the easier ways to separate after-tax basis from an IRA is to move your IRA. And I gave the example of someone who had a $130,000 IRA. And um, the year before they retire has to be the year before to make it work perfect. The year before retirement, he or she moves the IRA into their employer 401k. The only dollars that can move, I said, are pre-tax dollars. So the $130,000 of pre-tax dollars will move. I said there would be $30,000 of after-tax dollars left over. And I said the person could convert them or I went on and I said, take them out because it's after-tax dollars. You can get $30,000 out, 100% tax-free. And then I said, unless they're under 59 and a half, then they, and I paused because I was not sure, are they going to owe the 10% penalty or not? And I wasn't 100% sure. I felt after tax dollars, no, they wouldn't pay the 10% penalty, but I wasn't sure. Maybe they would. And I forget what side of the coin you fell I, on. I think I guessed they
2: would not pay the penalty on the after-tax dollars because there was no tax owed
3: owed yep but that's what we thought but i wanted to make sure and the minions at the ed slot group said no 10 percent penalty on after tax dollars even if under the age of 59 and a half. so I, I just wanted to clarify that okay the one that everyone may be waiting for with bated breath was the question we got from another advisor who did email us, Chris, Uh clarification on why his firm is looking to do this in one transaction.
2: He he copied me on it too, so I saw
3: that, yeah. Okay. Uh, In short, folks, this is the advisor who wrote to us and said, hey, let's just say we have a client who has a $25,000 RMD, could they do a conversion in one fell swoop? He the he has the client has not taken the RMD yet. Let me make that clear. As we have always said, once you reach RMD age, first dollars out of an IRA are always considered the RMD. Mm-hmm. RMDs cannot be rolled over. ...into another IRA and all Roth conversions are considered rollovers. Therefore, RMDs cannot be rolled over. So his concern was, if we do it in one transaction, if we tell our custodian to do a $75,000 conversion and send $25,000 in taxes... 20,000 to the feds and 5,000 to the state his client lived in on one form, one transaction. Will the IRS say the first dollars out with a conversion and now we ran into a problem? Or with the first dollars out the um, tax withholdings? So there wouldn't be a problem. Can we do this? It was the opinion of the Ed Slot group that yes, they could do it. Yes. <laughs> and their opinion was taxes, excuse me, when taxes are withheld from an IRA during a conversion, those taxes are never converted. So in the scenario I just explained, mm-hmm. they went on to share with me, the person would be taxed on the full $100,000 distribution. No harm, no foul there. He went on to say the same person could have taken their $25,000 distribution, RMD distribution first and withheld. um, How did he put it? I'm trying to I was trying to do this from memory. I'm going to go back to his email. I'll read it directly from his email to say it another way. The same person could take a $25,000 distribution for their RMD and just have 100% of it sent as taxes, Mm -hmm. which we spoke about last week, Chris. They could then do a $75,000 conversion and have nothing withheld. But that would be net, net and in the same place. So doing a 100,000 conversion and having 25,000 withheld to cover the RMD in our opinion, would be acceptable. Right. However, they put a butt in there, and it's a pretty big butt. But I would avoid doing it. I would avoid playing this game if only to minimize any, and he put the word any in all caps, any possible confusion with the IRS. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think that was a cover, a CYA, um, and I totally get why they're saying it. I get why this advisor was trying to do it, especially with their follow-up clarification where he said this was a Uh, I don't know if elderly was the word, but an older client that they were trying to minimize the amount of signatures and paperwork and all this kind of stuff to avoid confusion and doing it all as one just reduces the amount of, of this paperwork and signatures and things that are required, which is correct. Um, so that was the goal in doing this, that, that if there wasn't some overriding reason like that, that doing it in two steps is always safest. And I think this advisor acknowledged that, yeah, we would normally do this separately, but we were hoping to essentially improve the interaction with the client. They're trying to do a favor to the client by minimizing stress and, and demands upon them to, to do paperwork and everything. So I get why they're trying to do it. It's not nefarious at all. They're not trying to pull went over and the IRS gets you know gets their money as they're supposed to so um i think i'm in total alignment with with the slot group that that i think it would be totally fine those dollars never hit the roth those dollars went directly over to the to the uh IRS so I like their comment that the the tax part was never rolled over; it went directly over to the to the IRS. That's not a rollover; that's a, a direct transfer over to the IRS. And that it's likely just perfectly fine to do this. But do we want to raise a flag of examination from the IRS looking into this, saying, "Whoa, what'd you do here? You know, this you know, this makes us uncomfortable." Here's my thoughts. I agree so.
3: with everything all of you said. Mm-hmm. And I would say, go ahead and do it without hesitation. Yep. Now that I thought this through for a week and I got mm-hmm. the Ed Slots question, I just listened to you as well, Chris. And here's my point around it you're going to get a 1099 of 100,000. The IRS mm-hmm. doesn't know what came first the right. chicken or the egg? Exactly. You're going to have a $100,000, 1099. There's no separate box. You know that on Mm -hmm. the 1040 for indicating a conversion. you got to write it in the margins or however you do it now on the new 1040. I could be wrong on that one. But they're going to see a 1099 coming out of $100,000. They're going to see all of it paid as taxes. They're not going to know. Seventy-five thousand went into a Roth conversion on the tax return. You don't put it on the tax return. Yep. As far as I know, there's no spot on the 1040 right for indicating money was converted because it's all taxable. It's all the same. They're going to see, they're gonna know what the RMD is. They're gonna have the is uh God, here I go from memory. 5329. What's the I think it's pretty much fifty-three twenty-nine that comes out in May to report the value um Uh, of the IRA, so the the IRS knows that you have one. They're going to know an RMD is required. They're going to see $100,000 coming out. I've never heard of anyone being audited and saying what came first, the conversion, the $75,000 conversion, which they don't even know you did, or the $25,000 RMD. They're just going to see $100,000 coming out. I think it would be okay. And is it fifty three twenty nine? Did you Google that? I'm pretty sure it is. All those forms come from memory now. I don't study them, but I'm sure. I'm pretty sure fifty three twenty nine is the form for reporting the value. No, fifty three twenty nine is the penalty. Right. The penalty. So what? What is it's the reported the, yeah. one? Gosh, no, I can't remember. Dun, dun,
2: dun, 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 dun.
3: Fifty four ninety eight. Fifty four ninety eight. So,
2: Thank you. It was on the tip of my tongue.
3: Oh, I yeah. I get so confused with it. There was a time where you had to know those by heart. Now you forget them because you can just pump it into Google. But uh, the fifty four ninety eight, the the IRS is going to know the value of the IRA. They're going to know an RMD is supposed to come out. They're going to see a hundred thousand dollar ten ninety nine. They're not going to question what came first you're not doing anything nefarious at all listener your, your firm isn't your firm's trying to make it easier for an elderly person
2: no it's just that later if they find the whole hundred thousand went into a roth then you're going to be in trouble because you've rolled over yes. the rmd but as long as so that's that didn't happen here only 75 went into the roth which means the other didn't get rolled over and it should be totally fine so
3: and technically the IRS would find yeah. that out when they get the 5498 later showing the $75,000 conversion. In the Roth.
2: Yeah, exactly. So they're going to their computer system should tie all this together and when they see that they're going to see that the $25,000 RMD came out and nothing really is going to tell them the date order. Anyway, so I don't know how they'd even catch it. Without someone examining every last detail of your situation, which would be happening in some kind of bizarro detailed audit, which this isn't going to trigger. So
3: I was just wondering if there was going to be some sort of rule somewhere that it was pro rata that mm. the the money that went and even that, but it, in in hindsight, as I thought about this over the past week, that would be silly. It's pro rata what some of the money that went to the IRS was conversion and some of it was distribution. Yeah, that plus, made no sense.
2: No, because how would the IRS get your money that you
3: converted? I mean, exactly. That, yeah, that they couldn't. Sense. So yeah. to me it's doable. Yep. Now it's up to you guys. You guys are the CPAs for this client. Chris and I feel and the Ed Slot group feels it can be done, although Ed is saying or Ed's Minions are saying you might want to do it the other way. I'm saying I as a practicing advisor I know what you're going through with elderly people, especially elderly people who might be uh, aghast to technology and not feel comfortable. And you don't want to have to change tax filing status on one to send it all in and then have mm-hmm. them sign more paperwork to send it to change it back to zero to be yeah. able to get the conversion. Totally. And it, I fully, fully understand what you're trying to do. I think it can be done. I don't feel there's a problem. Just make sure that twenty five thousand doesn't in fact reflect at least the RMD. That there's no way any RMD got converted. Then, then you're fine. As long as you're sending equal or more mm-hmm. of the tax uh, of the RMD to the IRS in tax withholding, you should be fine. Yeah, my thoughts.
2: Yep, my thoughts okay. as
3: well. So, then we got a new question of the week, which just also happens to be an annuity question. Hmm. Not quite sure I'll keep this as the sole annuity question today. Depends how many more questions I can answer. I kind of went on that tirade at the beginning. But I thought this would be a good one because it's one that I don't know if we ever talked about. I think we did in the past, but hmm. I honestly don't know.
2: I can't wait. I love new ones. I love when we get a new question.
3: <laughs> okay. Um I am from a state which joined the Union in eighteen forty five as the twenty eighth state. State eighteen forty five? Eighteen forty five. As the twenty eighth. Okay, Googling state. this. I'm not. No way uh, you know what state became a state in eighteen forty
2: five. Uh Oklahoma.
3: <laughs> no I, even I know in eighteen forty five for Oklahoma. But close. It borders Oklahoma. Well,
2: don't laugh at me. I got close
3: then. Yeah, you're true. Nebraska. you throw a dot in the United States, you came close. I gave you another hint. It borders Oklahoma.
2: I I know. Texas? Texas. Oh, see? It only took me two guesses.
3: Yeah, perfect. Okay. Narrowed it down. Okay. I have a question about the treatment for distribution of a single premium immediate annuity. Assume I purchase a SPIA using my IRA money when I'm age 62. The annuity is held in an account with the insurance company, separate from the rest of my IRAs now. And he is correct there, folks. When you buy an annuity, whether it's a single premium immediate annuity, which is, again, the annuity that begins paying you in income, quote unquote, immediately, mm-hmm. it's usually within the first 13 months of purchasing it. They, they don't count the month you buy it. Then you get 12 months after. So you add it together it comes to 13 months. So usually the income will begin somewhere within the first 13 months. So they call it an immediate annuity. But it is an annuitized annuity. There's no more money you get. You get income for the rest of your life. But the fact that the money was in an IRA has not been lost. It's still in an IRA wrapper, so to speak. It's just not money that you can get at. It's income being pushed out of that IRA for the rest of your life. But it's still IRA money. So the man is correct uh, so far on everything that he's written. So he continues, my SPIA starts the payout immediately. Obviously, I just said that SPIAs begin within the first 13 months. Since I am, however, since I am not yet at RMD age and are not forced to take RMDs, can I keep the annuity distribution in an IRA somehow? To avoid paying income taxes on the distribution. Intriguing question
2: mm, makes me ask. We haven't had this yet, yeah.
3: It makes me ask a first question. Yeah. I don't know if this is something he's done or considering doing. Mm-hmm. But why are you buying a spear right. if, if you, you don't need the income? Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to answer his question. Yeah. I, I like his question from the standpoint it shows me he's strategizing, he's thinking. I like that. But the first thing that jumped into my head is, if you don't need the income, what the hell are you buying the SPIA for?
2: Well, I would, to be devil's advocate, I would guess that it's because with this high interest rate environment, he decided to pull the trigger. He did some projections on his own. and He was worried interest rates might drop in the future when he might actually need the income. And he decided in his best interest, he wants to lock in the rates, uh, the interest rates now that would uh, determine the SPIA payments. And so he fired it up. That's my guess. But I'm just guessing.
3: You could. I'd still be against that. Chris mm-hmm. and I are against. I, I do. I'm not saying I, it's
2: a good idea. I'm not judging no, no, it. I'm I saying know. that might be why he decided to do it.
3: But I'm, I'm rabbit holing you. I'm just sharing with people, especially if you're newer. But if you're a long time listener, I'm just drilling into your heads again. That could very well be what this listener was trying to do. And he's wondering if I did do that, if I lock in the interest rates, can I just keep the money because I don't have RMDs yet. I'm not required to. So this isn't a required distribution I'm taking from the IRA. I'm just taking a distribution from my annuity IRA. Doesn't become required until I'm 73. Can I roll it over into another IRA and kind of keep it from being taxed right now? If you're Strategizing that because you want to "quote unquote" lock in interest rates, and I agree with you, Chris. Is the only reason I can think of someone wanting to do this. I'm still against it because you don't know at age 73 when RMDs will have to begin from that IRA. You're only 62; it's 11 years. You might not need the income in 11 years. We we always believe in buying lifetime guaranteed income when you need it. And we've, we're asked this a lot on locking in these interest rates, but we've been asked this beginning last year and interest rates have gone up since last year. And that was my point. You can say they're high, but it doesn't mean they can't go higher because they have in the past. And listening to some of the classes today, uh, excuse me, yesterday, when uh, Schwab was having uh, a couple of economists talk to us. Arguments can be made on any side of the coin that interest rates are going to be much higher in the future or interest rates are going to have to be much lower in the future to stimulate the economy. I'm not sure which one is right, but I do know this debt that the government has is an albatross around their neck and it's getting worse after listening to some of the presentations here. So anyways, that's my only tirade I'll say there. Okay, back to his question. Intriguing. What do you think, listeners, and what do you think, Chris? He's got an IRA. Even though there's no account balance, it's still in an IRA wrapper. He's not of RMD age. Could he do that?
2: Are you waiting for me to answer or the audience? Yeah, I mean, I'm throwing it to you and I'm throwing think it to yes. our
3: listeners rhetorically.
2: Yeah, I think yes. He's not required to take it out if he doesn't have an RMD.
3: Okay, and listeners, what do you think? Well, actually, I wouldn't know what you think because this is a recording. I I thought for a moment I was live at the the Rock Retirement Club meeting or or something like that. It's a long day, folks. Mm -hmm. I've been in classes since 7.30 this morning. Okay, sorry about that, folks. The answer is no. What? The answer is no. You would think, it is possible. And I'm wondering if anyone picked up what where I thought you were going to go with this Chris, you were going to say yes but every other year.
2: Yeah, there's going to there's that issue, but does the insurance company not have a cash account option you could just tell them to keep it in there?
3: No. Let, once you annuitize, it is a distribution from the IRA. It's got to be pushed mm. out. Okay. So,
2: so the problem with then, when, well, let me expand. I Chris was going, yeah, the 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 sixty day rollover issue is going to come in where you could do it with the first right, payment, the, but then you'd have to wait a year. The,
3: the, true, and that's where I thought you were going to go with it because that's where a lot of people mm-hmm. who kind of know a little bit, and that some of our listeners might have been thinking that you can do it, but every other year. Because remember, a SPIA payment happens the same date every year, even if it's a Sunday or a holiday. The money just goes into your account automatically. And maybe some insurance on a Sunday or a holiday don't do it, but that way. But to, to roll money over, you have to wait 365, one day past 365. And if the payments came the same day every year, theoretically, you could do this every other year. As a rollover, because that's what the money would be. You're distributing the money. You got 60 days to get it back into an IRA, but that still won't work even every other year because the IRC, the internal revenue code is adamant and makes it perfectly clear. A spiatized annuity, spiatized is my verb, my word. I created it. a spiatized annuity, an annuity that has been turned into an income stream. In his case he's buying a single premium immediate annuity so I kind of blended the acronym spia with the verb annuitized a spiatized annuity with payments over your life or 10 year period certain or more cannot be rolled over. Mm. And the tax code is adamant on that. Mm. And I think Congress was looking to prevent People from kind of gaming the system this way for some. I can't think when this question came in, I started thinking it came in recently. So I was in the hotel room and I just was thinking in the shower. What was Congress concerned about? What were they thinking? I'm sure there's got to be some scenario where it could have benefited people to do that. And Congress was looking to nip it in the bud. But any periodic payments for your lifetime, which is what this gentleman was going to do, or to get around that, if you were to say, well, it's not for my lifetime, but it's period certain for 30 years, so I can do it. Any payments over your lifetime or for a number of years greater than 10 cannot be rolled over. Hmm. Can you think of what they were trying to, what game, what game were they looking to avoid? I can't figure that part out.
2: Maybe, maybe it was kind of like the five-year rule on Roth conversions where people that otherwise couldn't gain access to monies in a certain way could by doing, I'm just thinking out loud uh, that, that maybe there's a, maybe this is a step as part of a multi-step approach that could get them somewhere they otherwise couldn't get to. And they were trying to prevent that is I'd have to uh, there's nothing obvious to me that this would be an advantage where someone would want to do this um, that would help them. You know, in this particular case, it's not really helping them or hurting them. It's just I've got my money in there. I don't need to take the money, you know, the the payment out right now. I don't need the payment to spend on.
0: uh, And and a a
3: rollover. Well, no, I see where you're going. I was going to say I I, I was going to go somewhere where where it would have been wrong. So I'm glad I caught myself what I was about to say. I, I can't figure out. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's part of a step that they thought could, combined with several other steps, accomplish something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But they specifically wrote that into the tax mm-hmm. code, folks. So they will look to prevent people from doing something. Mm-hmm. So the, I like the guy's question, though. Mm-hmm. He was thinking. I, I like it, even though I got those. the
2: answer wrong, because I learned something. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I <laughs> learned best. That, this is another one of those. So usually when I get these wrong, it's something I never forget. So it's... Uh, I was not privy to uh, that specific wording in the IRC that that outright you know if it's stated like you're describing, absolutely it bars you from being able to do this. you're going to have to take the money out, pay taxes on it, and there you go. Could you turn around and then put it back at the insurance company and something else? Sure, but now you've already paid taxes on it, defeats the purpose of it so so
3: right uh, you could yeah. you could if you have a job. Yeah. contribute it there's there's no problem there right,
2: right but it's come out it's it's effectively come out of the ira wrapper by by rule
3: right he he i was under the impression he was trying to keep it in the ira wrapper so he yeah. didn't have to pay taxes on it right um you could convert it in the sense you took a distribution you're going to declare it as income and then you're going to you're not not going to convert it rather you could then contribute it I stand correct you're not converting yeah, it because it's all already conversions are a rollover so right. you
2: couldn't do a conversion with it either since conversion
3: but if yeah. he has a job he could contribute some of it is what I'm saying
2: yeah, he can contribute now after tax money <laughs> over right. to which something. is the only
3: money that can go into a roth is after <laughs> right. tax money yep yep but you could contribute it mm-hmm. if you had a job but right. you still have to pay taxes hmm. on it
2: yeah that's so, interesting that's interesting that's uh I don't I don't think we've ever faced that I don't think if anyone's ever Asked us if they could do that specifically. So Yeah.
3: yeah Anyways, nice. um I do have to get back. A junior is texting me wondering where I am. Okay. <laughs> um so He's I'm probably hungry,
2: you need to feed him dinner. So
3: <laughs> Well, we're trying to trying to hook up with one of the presenters here to get a free dinner, but uh, so far no luck. Oh. Um But we're going to uh, go grab a bite to eat, but um, go talk to a software vendor that I've been wanting him to chat with, and and I'm trying to get over there. So I'm not going to get to the last question I wanted to, folks. I'm sorry. I'm going to leave my hotel room, get back to the Schwab conference, and uh, meet with Jacob, one of our juniors, and chat to some software people. So I will be potting ways and chatting with you later. Thanks. Well,
2: thanks for taking time out and talking to me from your hotel room. So. I'll take okay. it from here. You say hi right. hi to Jacob for me. Yep. See you later. So thanks everybody for listening. If you want to send in your own questions for the show, uh, submit them directly to Jim through his email. His email address is jim at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And um, uh, make sure in the subject line that you indicate it's a question for the podcast or a suggestion for an EDU topic, whatever it is that you're uh, uh, wanting to let us know. And uh Interesting questions. I think you know Jim. I think reads through a lot of these as they come in, and the particularly interesting ones, like this one, being one we hadn't really tackled. This last question was something we haven't been asked. I don't think ever before. Uh, that increases your chances. So if you think if you have one, a unique question, uh, particularly if it's pretty straightforward. I mean, that was just a blunt, straightforward question. Those are perfect for the show, even though we might turn it into a fifteen or twenty minute answer. Uh, As we as we investigate or, or examine the the nuances of it, having those direct, hey, can I do this? You know, this is what I've got. This is what I'm trying to do. Can this be done or what happens if I do this? Those types of questions are perfect for this format, so uh, I encourage you to send you send us any of those you can think of. The longer ones, more of a crapshoot. If we can extract, if we can, you know, think we can share them with our listeners in a way that's efficient and uh, and not too, you know, overly specific just to you, then uh, they usually make the show. But uh, just a little just a little tips on uh, how you might increase your odds of getting your question handled on the show. So thanks a lot. Uh, We'll be back with you next week with a brand new show.
1: You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier and Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jimhelps.com or call 970-530-0556.
0: is offered through Jim Saulnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor.